Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. A reading from Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there is evening, and there is morning on the sixth day. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. As I dismiss, we do have EGC this morning. No EGC this morning. All right, so elevate. As you get up, first and second grade can go out. And as they do that, we go, we're, we're going to take just a quick minute and say hello to a person next to you and tell them that uh, they are so good looking. And I've been watching way too much Seinfeld. <clears throat> Okay, 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 calm down. You guys are getting out of hand. And you're still going, you're not even listening. All right, this is good, you guys are getting good at that. I'm super proud of you. Uh, and may, who knows, maybe you got some lunch plans out of that. And uh, uh, <clears throat> this morning, um, First of all, uh, I missed being here last week. I, I uh, was uh, preaching just at a friend's church uh, locally. He, he needed come, somebody to come in and preach about parenting because he wasn't a parent yet. So he's like, hey, can you do that? And I was like, yeah, I can. And uh, it was on imperfect parenting, and rarely do I feel like an expert in, uh, in anything, but I felt like an expert in that field uh, on imperfect parenting. Uh, this week, we have been going through... Uh, this sermon series on uh, the Apostles' Creed. Um, every once in a while, I will sit down with somebody, and they will, uh, they, they want to, they've experienced a life event, or they've had something significant happen in their life. It's not necessarily a member of refuge, but, and, and some, mo- oftentimes it's not even a, a follower of Jesus. They just are like, this significant event happened to me, and I have some questions about it. Uh, and, and I'm not a, a, I have a prophet personality, but I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Um, but sometimes I'll, I'll just sit down and, and hear them out. And so several years ago, it's probably 10 years ago, um, a friend of a friend, he had some life events that he wanted to, to talk about. Uh, it, it was actually, he was telling me the story and on a work site, and this had been several years prior on a work site, um, he was almost buried alive. And by all accounts, probably should have died. 
And so he's telling me this story, but, but the dirt and the rock had fallen in such a way that he was not crushed, but actually just walked away with a few scratches. And it was amazing. And I'm sitting here listening like, whoa. And, he, and so he said to me, um, he's like, so what do, you, do, you think, like, do you think this means that God has some kind of plan for my life? And he was asking these, these questions. Um, and, and do you think God spared me for a reason? And so um, if you know me, you know that I resist any like, th- this happened, so this must happen. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure that this means that you're going to be president. I wouldn't w- wish that on anybody, actually. Um, hopefully that's not what God spared you for. Uh, but um, I, what I did say to him was, uh, after like, rejoicing that God had somehow spared his life, uh, I didn't want to put the weight of expectation on him, nor did I want to assign to him some kind of like divine favor. The, the will of God is good, and we trust it in good, ter- good times and in bad times. Sometimes it's easy to say, praise God. Sometimes it's hard to say, praise God. Um, and uh, so I, I gave him that, uh, but I did suggest to him that this ought to cause him to see both his life and the purpose and meaning of all of life with some new eyes, right? That this ought to like, impress upon him that life is precious, that it is a gift, that being young and strong doesn't mean your whole life is in front of you necessarily, but to, in, to, but to face something like that ought to give you new eyes, ought to give you a new faith, and maybe sit back and praise the God of creation and value your life and his existence a little bit more. That life is not just this cosmic accident, but, but a, a, an appropriate response can be to cry out, thank you, Jesus, and enjoy the gift of life that he has given you, and enjoy God as the creator of life. And so he, he was kind of nodding, and he looked down, and I could tell like he was in deep thought, and his, you know, his face would kind of go from serious to kind of smile, and as he was thinking over these things, and, and, then, and then he, he he, he kind of nodded a little bit and he looked up to me and he had a little smile on his face and he licked his lips and I'm, I'm ready for this like powerful response. And he says, so what do you think about black holes? <laughs> I don't know. Um, this is a 1,000% true story. I didn't know how to respond to that. I am in favor of asking good questions. Uh, I am in favor that, uh, of us as followers of Jesus being good, critical thinkers. I think that's part of our design. I think we are designed not to go constantly the path of least resistance or the path of battle, but to actually be be become in awe of the world that we're in and the way that God designed it and the intricacies of the ways that he designed it. And this morning as we're into the Apostles' Creed and looking at God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we talk about the foundations of the world. um, And when it comes to discovering our purpose, and when it comes to discovering the mission of God's people and how much of that is actually wrapped up in the creation narrative, I think we ought to be good thinkers. And I think we ought to ask really good questions. And sometimes, if you've ever had a good question asked to you, sometimes the question can drive actually deeper than just getting an answer. Um, So we're going to look this morning at the idea of the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to... We're going to talk about creation. And uh, I'm going to encourage you two things. One, don't get up and leave during the middle of the sermon, because I'll know and it'll hurt my feelings. So for no other reason, don't hurt my feelings. Wait till the end, and then if you want to address stuff, you can do that. But the other thing I'm going to ask you, we're going to approach it from a different perspective. Um, We're going to approach it, uh, I hope, from the perspective from which it was written, but also sometimes I think our creation narrative, as followers of Jesus, it's been kind of flattened out. Either yes, he did, Battling against, no, he didn't. Um, 
And I, I, want us, I want us to think better than that. I want us to ask better questions than that. I want us to examine our own positions here. And not be scared that somehow God is not sovereign over all things and over the universe. And also not be scared that God's word is not sufficient here. It is absolutely sufficient. Um, and so we're going to, so I'm saying all this so that you don't like, because uh, we're going to kind of go from different paths and we're going to kind of gather some different data and, and we're going to sit in this. Uh, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and so we're going to do that. Something I also want to address really quick. As we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, this is the first time I get to preach, and Joel and Darden both covered this, and I think they did a great job. And you might be sitting here saying, well, why are we doing the Apostles' Creed? Shouldn't we be reading Scripture? And my answer is yes. The Apostles' Creed is rooted in historic faith and flows from Scripture. Okay? You may have heard statements like I did growing up. We're not a creedal people. We are a people of the Bible. or We are a people of... Uh, you know, we, we no, no creed but Christ, which those are actually beautiful creeds, except for the fact when you say we're not, a, we're not creedal. Um, I get it. I get the, where, where creeds can kind of block some things out. And what I want to encourage you with, if you're, if you're sitting here or if you've wrestled with this thought of wh why are we doing the creed, we should be doing scripture. Uh, what I would respond to you with and want to help you see in, in, in the garage of our faith, that we can let the creed be like storage shelves that we're building to help keep some organization and structure. Some of you have better garages than others, right? Um, and I'm like literally, I'm not, not faith. I, that wasn't me judging your faith. That's me judging how much this illustration may hit. Um, uh, I, ours is terrible. Uh, but like we're building some shelves on which to store knowledge and truth and scripture that can help us put it in, in ways that we can access it. Or like we've talked about, like Joel said, that the creed can be like a suitcase that we carry around and when we need to unpack it and, and dive into what we believe and what Christians have believed for 2,000 years and how we hold to that and how the church has both tested and seen what it is and what it isn't, uh, that this is what the creed helps us do. Does that make sense? And what we're, what we're putting on these shelves is scripture and is God's word, and, and it helps us to kind of uh, have a deeper and richer understanding of God's word and on the shelves that, they are, that we're putting this stuff on. All right? If that doesn't make sense, that's the best I got right now, and I'll try to come back with something better next week if it, if it wasn't good enough. Um, so... Um, this week, I believe God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And again, we're going to look at this a little bit differently because I think what's important when we look at what creation is and what this creation account gives of what it is, we also need to, and sometimes we can see it better by understanding what it isn't. And I'm going to give you the punchline. I was going to say this till the end of the sermon, but I'm going to give it to you now so you can actually begin to think of it as we're going through this. The biggest danger in our day is not that we don't understand the creation narrative about who God is, but that we actually hold the creation narrative of the Christian God, of the God of Israel, in a pagan way. The biggest threat that we have and that has hit us throughout history and God's people throughout history is that we hold to God's truth in a pagan way. And so that's what I want you to, like I want that to marinate in you as we go through this. And hopefully that'll make uh, more sense. And I think this is a beautiful narrative that gives us a whole lot uh, if you've ever, I've, I've always said that the first three chapters of a book are the most important and I think the Bible is no exception. Uh, if you don't get it in the first three chapters, throw the book away, right? They, they should give you enough to make you want to go more, or sometimes you're like, okay, I get it. Um, the first three chapters of Scripture are, are critical in understanding that. Um, so we're going to look at this creation narrative in light of what it is and in light of what it isn't. Um, so uh, when we read the Genesis text, we need to understand what questions should we ask of this text, what should we ask? Because we're all asking questions. Even if we say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, we are asking questions when we say that. We are making presumptions. And so what questions are we asking of the Genesis text? 
Um, and so there are three areas that we're going to look at this. Land, God is the creator of. Land, life, and law. I came up with three L's. It's the Baptist in me. Uh, all right. So let's start with the land. So the first six days, six, 5.75 days of creation, uh, God is dealing with how the land is created. So that's what I'm, I'm looking at. And, and the, the, what Genesis gives us with this Judeo-Christian account of creation. And I want to read... Uh, I want to read an illustration. This is from John Walton. He's an Old Testament professor at uh, Wheaton, and he's the author of several books, the most popular being The Lost World of Genesis. He gives this illustration, all right? And I think this is helpful when we, ask, when we look at what questions we ask. Imagine a play came into town that you wanted to see, and so you purchased tickets, but on the evening of the play, you encountered, encountered numerous difficulties. The weather was bad. Traffic snarled. Streets were closed for construction. No parking spot was available, and consequently... You walk into the theater a half hour late. Intermission soon comes, and so you turn to the person next to you and ask, how did the play begin? The friendly woman next to you is glad to answer your question. Well, this play was written in the early 20th century, and it was a Pulitzer Prize nominee, and you go, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. I'm sorry, that's not what I was asking. And she replies, uh, well, one couldn't have a play without a script, uh, and that's a very logical answer. And you say, well, no, I don't, I'm not arguing that. I agree, but you prompt her again with your question, which she patiently replies. Okay, well, um, the stage was constructed by the Marshall Construction Company, which specializes in, and, and again, you, you cut her off. You say, okay, no, I, I, under, I understand, um, but that's not necessarily what I wanted to know. So she gets a little irritable and replies, how in the world could you have a play without a stage? Okay, true enough, you agree. But you, again, you indicate that's not what I'm asking. <sighs> okay, so she tries again. The set was designed for this stage by the Johnson & Phillips Company that specializes in black box theater design. They, and again, you cut her off mid-sentence. No, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not what I'm interested in. And now she's frustrated and she's silent. And so the gentleman sitting next to you on the other side attempts to step in. Sir. This particular production began when the cast was chosen by the Smith and Rogers Casting Agency. They particularly sought out beginning actors who, okay, no, I'm sorry, none of this is what I'm asking. Please tell me what happened when the curtains opened. Oh, they respond. Why didn't you ask that? Some of the best advice that I have ever received, especially when it comes to reading the book of Genesis, and not only the book of Genesis, but any, any passage of Scripture, and we talk about this over and over and over, Scripture was written to a people in a time and place. And when we understand what God was saying to them first, then we can understand best what God is saying to us. And so the question is, we ask the text the questions that it was meant to answer. We look at Genesis and we tend to ask questions of who built the stage. Scientific, scientific questions. How old is the earth? Are these literal days? Are these eons? Everywhere else in scripture, when the word day is used, it's a literal 24-hour period, so why wouldn't it be here? Ancient Israelites, to whom this account is written, were not asking scientific questions. They weren't. They wouldn't have been. What they wanted to know was set design. They had the presumption, there is a stage. Why are things put in the place that they're put in? We are not at war with science. Christianity, Christian, uh, religion and science, when they stay in their fields, can actually be very helpful and complementary to one another. It's when we each enter the other field that we have to be a little careful. Science can give us a lot of insight into the form and structure of the universe. Science can give us research and data and can be very helpful in the form and structure of the universe. But it is God, or at minimum philosophy, if, we're, if we're, we, we have to be honest, that gives us the function. Why do things operate the way they do? 
Why are these things, why are these put in this way? The backdrop that the people of Israel are at, at war, or are, are, are standing against, is in their time in Egypt, they were taught for 400 years, more than likely, uh, they heard the ancient Mesopotamian story of creation, the, the narrative called the Enuma Elish. And this is the story of the mother and father gods. You have Apsu, who is the father god, made of fresh water, and Tiamat, who is the salty, bitter mother god. I did not write the ancient Mesopotamian literature, uh, so don't get mad at me. Take it up with them. And she, of course, made up the salt water. And where they came together, they produced, they would have little baby gods. Well, Apsu, if we can all identify with Apsu, right? Apsu gets mad at the children gods who are staying up too late and making too much noise. All right. So you ever want to know, do I identify with Apsu? Probably. And so he vows to take vengeance. Well, Tiamat gives them a, a warning. Don't, don't, be, be careful. Apsu's coming after you. And so what they do, and these gods vary from different nation to different nation, different city to different city, but what the ancient Babylonian text gives us is this god named Marmaduke, one of the kids, rises up against Apsu and slays him. And at this point, Tiamat is mad now at the children. She, she defended them, but now she's mad because they killed her husband. And so Marmaduke goes to war against Tiamat, his mom. And he eventually slays her and divides her and from her creates the Tigris and the Euphrates, the rivers of life. And then he goes on to sentence other smaller G-gods to death. Uh, I'll get there in a second. Hold on with that. If you're like, wait, I want to know. I want to know. Hold on. Um, for the Israelites... What we see in this creation narrative is that creation was made out of chaos. It came from war and battle and blood and conflict. What God wants to know in his creation narrative to the Israelites is that I am not a God of chaos and war and blood. I am a God of goodness and structure and order. And when you read Genesis 1, there is a beautiful structure to the way God creates. In day one, he has the light and the darkness. And then the correlating day, day four, he populates them and gives the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. It's beautiful. And then in day two, God he separates the expanses, and you have the skies and the heavens, and you have the seas and the rivers. And on day five, the correlating day of creation, God gives and creates the birds of the sky to populate the sky, and the fish of the sea to populate the sea. Order, creation, design, and it's good. And then on day three, God creates the land and, and the vast parts of the land, and he creates vegetation and trees to come up from the land. And then the corresponding day of day six, God creates creatures to dwell on the land and to feed and function. And all of this creation is beautiful, and it's good, and God looks and says it's good. And here's what's even more awesome, I think, that John Walton talks about this. This reads like an ancient Middle Eastern text of the creation of a temple. And so when you have day seven, the completion of the temple was for the king or the ruler of the temple to then sit on the throne and begin his reign. And so what day seven would symbolize is the king of the universe sits in his temple of creation and begins his reign. That's beautiful. And God looked at all the things that he had made and he said, behold, it is what, class? Behold, it is good. 
This is not a creation out of violence. This is not a land grab. This is not many smaller gods at war with each other and trying to play who is. And so what the ancient Israelites were hearing is there is one God over all things. And then we get to the end of day six. What we read earlier. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what we see in in day six, first God says, let us make man in our image. There's a hint there of the triune God. Uh, You can't say that's the triune God, but what we see revealed more and more through scripture, we can look back and go, Wow, we're getting hints even in the very beginning. And even in the very beginning when we see that we're made in that image, we see that we are made for communion and for fellowship and for relationship. And so then God said, let us create Adam, which is Hebrew for man, in our likeness. What we have at the conclusion of the Enuma Elish is that Marduk goes back and he sentences anybody that collaborated with Tiamat to death. And so Queen Jew, which is, which is uh, I, I think it's king, uh, had collaborated with Tiamat, and he is put to death. And from his blood, Marmaduke forms with the earth and makes man. He makes, uh, and I don't know how to pronounce it, Lulu or Lulu. Nobody's correcting me, so we'll just go with Lulu. Um, and... This is the first man, and he's created by Marmaduke to do the God's bidding and to help keep order on the earth. Not like in a blessed and empowered way, but like in a servant way. Mow the lawn. Don't make messes. Keep things under control. In Genesis, God forms man out of clay and breathes life. In chapter 2, even work, God puts Adam and Eve into the garden to work it and to keep it. That his blessing to them to be fruitful and multiply would be carried out by them as they exercise good and proper dominion over the land to bear good fruit and to be fruitful and multiply. And this is a God that empowers and blesses to practice good and healthy dominion, to make beauty and blessing, to image this God and be creative and produce beauty and blessing into the world. In the Genesis account, all of mankind, this is critical, all of mankind is made in the image of this God. So not just the Israelites are made in the image of this God, The Babylonians are made in the image of this God. The Egyptians are made in the image of this God. They all bear the image of this one God. You don't have lesser gods that start creating other nations and other beings to do their bidding as they are at war with other gods. The Egyptians had a view of this idea of the image bearer of God. And you know who it was? It was close male relations of the... Pharaoh. Those were image bearers of God, of the Pharaoh. Others were lesser than. They were servants created by lesser gods to do their bidding. The God of the Israelites, as told by their creation narrative and the history that we see throughout Genesis, is not only that God created the world and the heavens, and not only did he create the Israelites, but the Babylonians and the Egyptians and all of the ancient Mesopotamian peoples, and they all bore the image of this one God. And that God created them all, all of us, good and pronounced us good. And listen, I know with Christianity, sometimes we start with, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And I don't, I don't question that anybody here is a sinner and in need of a savior. But before that, in our creation narrative, what we are rooted in is that God created man good. And so before we're any of these things, we are created and designed by God in his image. 
good. We believe that God created the land. We believe, as we see in Genesis 6, that God created life. And this gets rather assumed in our world, but this was radical in the ancient world. We kind of look and we go, oh yeah, of course. And the God may have different names and he may sit over different religions and well, that's not important. Well, of course we believe that. We don't believe there are multiple gods at work creating multiple worlds where the foundation of those worlds are to war with other people. But they did. And one of the main reasons we don't believe that anymore is because Christianity has spread throughout the world in good ways and in bad ways. Christianity has spread throughout the world. Good methods and bad methods. Let me say that. Tied in with this, we also believe that God gives the law. And so we see the origins of that here. Verse 28, God blessed them. That's huge. That's huge. Didn't order them, didn't command them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, heavens of, the air, uh, of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. We have other sets of laws from the ancient times. Um, most notable is the Hammurabi Code. Has anybody ever heard of that? Study of the ancient world, right? The, Hammur the Hammurabi Code, I said Hammur Hammur Hammurabi, I think is the official, um, is uh, that gives moral guidelines. It has a lot of similarities to the biblical law. Um, and uh, and that, that talks about things like not stealing, not lying, very good moral code. Sometimes we are guilty, Christians, of putting the Ten Commandments out as simply a moral code, right? This land, we need the Ten Commandments. Okay, I don't disagree with that. And certainly the command of the Lord and the law has a moral code in it, how we are to operate, how we are to deal with neighbors and not lying and not stealing and all of that. But it's more than that. It has to be more than that. The first line of the Ten Commandments, the apex of the law, is to worship God alone and have no other gods before him. When Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets, all of them, he doesn't summarize by saying, be moral. He summarizes by saying, all of the law and the prophets are summed up into this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There are similarities to these old uh, codes and laws, but the differences are huge. They're huge. There are moral implications, but what we see in the law as God gives it, especially as it flows out of the creation narrative, is not this list of arbitrary rules that God throws out so he can punish us when he needs to. Nor is the, it's at these commands to caretake the lawn and get stuff done so we and the other gods can sit up on the mountain and not have to mess with this nonsense. What we see in the law that God gives is, this is how I designed the world to work. And this is how I designed you to work. And this is how I designed relationships to work. And this is how this was supposed to be. That you, that me and my people had fellowship together and that you listened and obeyed and trusted and that it was to be a blessing to give fruit. And so you don't lie not because it's bad. You don't lie because it breaks the way that I designed the world to be. And so the law even is this invitation to know the God of creation. The picture of this God of the Israelites is both alike and very unlike other gods. The ancient world, they knew of gods that demanded loyalty. 
And they knew of gods that had power, and they knew of gods that formed uh, and shaped laws, and they knew of gods that had power to conquer enemies. What was so confusing about this God of the Israelites was that this God was supposedly almighty and yet jealous for his people. That didn't make sense. A God that demonstrated more power than the other gods, as he had just demonstrated in Egypt that he was more powerful than all of the other gods through the plagues, as he dismantles them, and yet loves and wants to love this people. And here's the kicker. You ready for this? That this God takes a nobody-nothing nation and makes them glorious and powerful, demonstrating his goodness and grace. And when they become powerful, they are to bear his image to the world. But when they become powerful, they get cocky and arrogant which every other ancient narrative, that's the point. Does that make sense? If you're a god in the ancient world, when your, when your kingdom becomes the top, that's the whole point. We win. But for this god, when his people get to the top, they get arrogant. And he says, no, that's not why I blessed you. I blessed you to be humble and to bear my image as a God of beauty and grace and being patient upon patient upon patient, he eventually says, okay, here's the thing, I love you, but what you're going to learn is just how powerful you are not without me. My goal is not to make you great as the end in itself. My goal is that you would reflect me in your humility and in your greatness. That was unheard of. And so the question we may ask is, well, what happens when the people of God actually disobey this law? We have this radical, radical thing. This is a God that doesn't put to death those who are disobedient. This is a God that comes and dies on behalf of the disobedient. This is crazy. We need to make Christianity crazy again. This is unheard of. Yes, there's a great deal of commonality amongst, amongst some of the ancient narratives, the ancient gods and how things were, were very, very similar in all these different ways, but oh, the differences. The differences. Now, in our day, we're not asking the question of which God necessarily. We're asking the question of set design. Uh, we're not asking the question of set design. We often ask the scientific questions. Who built the stage? How was it built? How many days? Listen, science, as science exists, is not an enemy of Christianity. In fact, man, if you study science as the beautiful, intricate ways that God actually designed the world to be, it's amazing. Like, I remember, I'm not a scientist. I actually called Jason Hughes yesterday, and he confirmed that, and, um, <laughs> which he often does. And I, anytime I talk science, I'm like, I'm way out of my field here. So rest assured, I'm way out of my field here. But man, when you read how, like, the molecules work together and all these kind of things, uh, and, and how, just how we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and how the universe was designed to be, and how, like, the research in medicine, and the research of all of these, all of these things, it is mind-boggling. And as long as we stay in our fields, when science enters into philosophy, there's, there's issues. But also, we should be careful about taking scripture into areas of science. Not that it doesn't give insight, Scripture is not a science textbook. And we need to understand that. So science as it exists is not an enemy. 
What we should be concerned with is that the people of God are faithful to being who God has called us to be, a people who believe in this Israelite God that we see in this creation narrative, that we are shaped by that, and the oper- we operate in a different way in a hostile world. And when we take this for granted, that's when we can start to hold this in pagan ways. Does that make sense? We hold these views as if we're out to take over the lesser gods and pound them into submission and prove that our God is the greatest. Let me tell you something. Our God doesn't need proof that he is the greatest. He certainly doesn't need uh, us doing it. Uh, All right, I'm going to finish here, and this is where where I could get into trouble. (laughs) You're like, oh, this is where you're going to get into trouble? Um, Yeah. We... As God's people, I think Genesis is a beautifully sufficient and powerful explanation of the way that the world should be. I think it's a beautiful creation narrative. The more I read this, the more I get lost in it, the more I'm just in awe of how God established the world. And it's, it's ceased to become this just flat, yes, he did or no, he didn't type of thing. I mean, it's beautiful. But I've also seen how we've kind of presumed it and then carried it in pagan ways. I've been doing a little reading on on some of the history of Charles Darwin. And if there's anything that we have tended to do, Christianity, sometimes we take arguments and we just make them really flat and we say, these people are good and those people are bad. And listen, I've done this with Darwin. Darwin. I have. Um, And I will... I'm going I'm, I'm to disagree with some of Darwin's conclusions. All right? Everybody relax. I'm going to disagree with some of Darwin's conclusions. But what I've been reading more about is Darwin as a human being and what motivated Darwin to do the research that he did. Darwin spent time in the Galapagos Islands and he did all of his research on the finches. And what he saw in the finches was that there, you had all of these different islands and they had all these birds that were kind of similar but not totally similar. And so as he did research, what he realized was all of these birds are actually of the same species. But they have adapted in different ways based on the climate and based on where they're at. In other words, they weren't designed that way in that place. They came from the same species, but they adapted to different climates and different needs. In our day, we can look at that and say, okay, yeah, sure, sure. What motivated Darwin to do this, what motivated Darwin to study this, was actually his absolute hatred and detesting of slavery. His grandparents... Both of his grandfathers were abolitionists and fought for human equality. And this was the day back in England where slavery was also being fought against, but it was being advocated by the general consensus of England, but also a number of religionists, most of them claiming Christianity in a pagan way. Darwin in his confession to friends and his talking with other people would record several times the things that he had seen that his grandpas had both taken him and he saw men beaten, he saw women beaten, he saw African children ripped apart from their parents. He saw bodies discarded in just horrible ways. Darwin was not out to topple Christianity. Darwin was out to show we may have different colors of skin but we all come from the same species. That was, I believe, his motive. Interestingly enough, other research in the day would show different, other different species. I think there was something to do with ants that uh, where, where one species of ant would actually become more powerful and dominate the other species. Darwin, this was surprising to me, but as far as I understand it, Darwin never applied his view of, of this adaptive evolution to humans. I don't, I don't know why. 
but I think his motive was to end slavery. Now, if you know much about history, Darwin's views were then taken and manipulated. His cousin used some of his research to work with eugenics. Eugenics is a way that you look at the population and say who is redeemable and who is discardable. Who is less than human and who is humans that were valuable. Eugenics were used very much in Nazi Germany. This very research was taken and used in Nazi Germany to justify Hitler's master race. Sadly, if you know much about the history of St. Louis, eugenics was brought in to set up the city of St. Louis and the various municipalities and how St. Louis was arranged. I would submit the greatest problem that the ancient people of God had is the same problem that we have in understanding this creation story. This is stuff that we should have known from the beginning. What Darwin sought to uncover in his views of evolution is actually something we have in Genesis 1. It's not that the creation story lacks in any way in telling us who God is and whose God's image we are called to bear. And it, doesn't, it gives us the full character of God. But the greatest problem is that we can so easily take that and hold it in a pagan way. That God is a ruthless God that has to constantly be appeased by our labor, by our work, by our victories. That God created us bad and that we have to earn his favor to keep on his good side. That Christians are a people up against the bad people of the world, designed out of chaos, not to bear the image of this good and loving God who blessed us to bear fruit, but to defeat bad people. My fear is sometimes we've manipulated scripture so that we don't practice good and blessed authority and dominion in God's name, but that we are constantly tempted to practice a pagan form of dominion and authority as if we were God. My hope is that seeing the way this, this Genesis narrative is different, what it is and what it isn't, helps remind us if we're a follower of Jesus, we don't operate out of a pagan narrative. We confess, this is to quote Michael Byrd, uh, we confess that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And when we do that, we are saying that God is distinct from creation. He is sovereign over creation. He loves his creation. He's concerned with creation. And God remains active in creation. And we are called to bear his image, to be blessed by him, to be creative, to bear fruit and beauty that comes with holiness, love, justice, mercy, compassion, righteousness, on and on and on that is consistent with the nature of our God. And that our response to this great creator is not one of obligation or guilt or fear or violent loyalty, but our response is one of grateful, awe-filled praise and joy. This is the beautiful and wonderful creator of the world in, in the image we bear that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. For the beauty of the earth and the glory of the skies, for the love from which our birth over and around us lies, Lord of all, to you we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. Here's your practice for the week. There's an ancient practice called the Visio Divina. And I'm not going to give you the full picture of that, but I think this is good. So this week, I want you to practice just a sense of this idea of the Visio Divina. Here's essentially the, the thing. I want you to notice God in creation. Now, I don't just mean sunsets and sunrises and, and mountains and oceans and rivers and lakes and all of those beautiful things. Certainly in those things. We're nowhere near mountain or a, uh, ocean. And Mississippi Rivers. Uh, but I also want you to notice this in people. 
in community, in relationships, in laughter, in joy, in sorrow, in art, in architecture. And keep your eyes more open this week for beauty. And when you notice it, stop. Stop for just a second. Take account of what you're feeling, all right? This is not me saying trust your emotions, all right? Don't, don't, over, don't overdo that. Take account of what you're feeling. If you have that pit in your stomach at a sunrise, take account of that. Stand in awe. Stand in wonder. God the designer. God the creator. And ask two questions. God, how are you at work here? And God, how are you at work in me? So this week, take notice. God would give us deeper eyes to see, deeper ears to hear, and then a greater voice to sing his praise. Let's pray. God, you are the creator of all things. We confess that, we rejoice in that, we take comfort in that. There is no argument that can... There are arguments that can make us feel bad, but there is no argument that can take you off the throne of creation. And so you are over all of creation. And we rest in that. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. This week, help us to notice the way that you designed the world to be and, uh, and that we would rejoice in your goodness and that we would rejoice in your beauty that we would be good, critical thinkers, that we would ask good questions, that science would not be seen as a threat, but it could actually unpack just how awesome and magnificent you are and the way you design things to work. And that research doesn't ever disprove you, it actually uncovers you all the more. God be with your people as we seek to live out and bear your image well. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.